Welcome to LOA Today. I'm Walt Kaysen. With me today is the effervescent Bridget D. This is your daily dose of happy. We are so happy you decided to join us today. And we are joined by a special guest. As usual, we're on a run of special guests lately, and we're going to be for some time because uh, we're trying to expand out a little bit, expand the conversation points long, be, way beyond law of attraction and talk about life in all of its different forms. And we have a guest today who's going to give us quite an interesting conversation along that line because he is the author of a book entitled The Summer I Died 20 Times. I mean, that's a title that's got to get your attention no matter how you look at it. <laughs> Mm -hmm. all about Mr. Fred Rutman. He's going to tell us about that. We're going to find out who he is as a person and learn more about his life uh, when he's not dying during the summer, which is probably a good thing. But uh, Fred, welcome to the program. We're glad that you had that you're able to join us today. Thank you. I'm glad I'm able to join you. Absolutely. <laughs> I'm glad I'm able to join anyone. <laughs> That uh, obviously we have to go to that topic first because that's that's one of those you know huh kind of titles like how could that possibly be so tell us about the summer you died twenty times. Uh, well, this started in the summer of two thousand nine, early in the summer of two thousand nine, mm -hmm. when um, I started losing consciousness and hitting my head on whatever was the hardest object in the immediate vicinity. Ouch! And. Uh, it, it took a while. I was misdiagnosed uh, a whole bunch of times, and I suffered a lot of concussions and post-concussion syndrome and all sorts of things like that. What we eventually discovered was that my heart was stopping and mm -hmm. that I had been clinically dead about 20 times. Wow. So Wow. For the, That's crazy. For, uh, yeah, for your audience that doesn't know, that doesn't know, don't know, which is correct. Help Either me out one. Here. <laughs> <laughs> um, we not the words. We just spit it out. <laughs> okay. Clinically dead is when your heart stops and you stop breathing at the same time mm -hmm. for a certain amount of time. So mm -hmm. depending on which medical source, it's, you know, 30 seconds, a minute, two minutes, whatever. So I actually had some incidences where um, we re it was recorded. It was five minutes. Wow. Oh, wow. Yeah. So, yeah, that's that's lengthy. No doubt about that. I'm, I'm also curious, too, because uh, I, I, this is actually not the first time I've ever interviewed somebody who had been through near-death experiences. I Back, I was telling Bridget just before we came on live here that uh, back when I started the podcast um, almost 10 years ago, among my first guests was one gentleman who I interviewed twice who had also been through near-death experiences. We had some really interesting conversations. So I'm kind of looking forward to what it is you have to tell us. But um, I gathered from the webpage I was reading about you that you have some recollection about what you experienced when you were in the midst of those near-death experiences. What can you relate about that? Um, that's a good question. I don't have the typical near-death experience experience that okay. other people seem to have had. So I wish I had something like uh, the famous comedian Sam Kinison, mm -hmm. who, mm -hmm. who passed, and I don't know if you know his story, but there were multiple people there watching him talk, presumably to God, as, as he was dying um, and having that experience. And, you know, he was a pastor in his prior life. I think he was the... Oh, my. A, a Baptist minister. He came from a line of Baptist ministers or mm -hmm. uh, from something like that. So the dying part was pretty cut and dry. It was, you know, you're gone in like an amazingly quick amount of time. And the coming back to life part is the, the part that was so vivid and you literally feel yourself coming back to life, like all your systems reigniting. And it's like being struck with thousands of lightning bolts at mm. the same time. And, and the colors are amazing. And, uh, you know, especially for someone who is colorblind in the real world and you could actually feel the, the impact of these lightning bolts battering you around. It's wow. just, but on the other hand, because I didn't have the experiences like so many other, I feel kind of ripped off. Like there's <laughs> no, you know, 
I mean, once you could understand, you know, not seeing, you know, people on the other side or the come to the light or like, mm -hmm. okay, twice, three, but come on, 20 times. Is <laughs> like, I don't know whether to be terrified, thankful. What's, what's the right response here? Well, you were trying, you know, basically, you were testing the waters over and over again and getting the same result. So, I mean, there's some validity in that. There's some value in that. Yeah, I, I wasn't sure I was in test mode, though. I, I really didn't, <laughs> you know, and until about the 16th time when they diagnosed me, uh, I didn't really know that I was dying. Mm. And that's when it became clear. But I was so battered uh, mentally from all the concussions and trauma and things of that nature. I really, it really didn't dawn on me till like two years later that I was like, Oh my God, I was dead. Mm. Like, I've been dead. Yeah. <laughs> it's, it's pretty hard to wrap your mind around that. Even though you've been through it, it's still hard to wrap your mind about, around that. And I can understand that. I mean, it's mm -hmm. so far outside of experience. How could you possibly do that? Yeah. Yeah. And that's the real challenge is trying to figure out how do you, how do you handle that? Um, interesting too, that you, you haven't had the kinds of experiences that are typically reported, but I think it's important to remember that's perfectly valid. Mm -hmm. Just yeah, because you didn't I'm, have the experiences doesn't mean that your your experience is any less valid. Yours is just as valid. Oh, for sure. And, you know, it wasn't just this summer that this happened to me. I had a couple of more um, seasons where I went through the same thing over and over again uh, because the fix that they gave me turned out to be not a long-term fix, oh. but it should have been. So... Um, the uh yeah there was all sorts of cognitive damage and everything and there were there's really no roadmap to try and mm. recover from something like this uh you know except using your your own innovation and positivity and thinking that you know there's got to be a way to recover like um you know whatever your spiritual spiritual orientation i don't think god makes mistakes mm. so or or the universe doesn't make mistakes. It's a mm -hmm. pretty well-run machine. Mm -hmm. So, you know, there's a reason this happened to me. And um, I might not understand the reason uh, or ever figure it out. But there's a reason something happened to me. And yet from what you're describing, it sounds like you've got some things that you have been able to learn along the way. You, there, there, it sounds like there are some things that you've been able to kind of make sense out of it. At least that's what I'm kind of inferring from what you just said. Yeah, some days it makes more sense than others. <laughs> and, uh, well, okay. <laughs> That's understandable. You know, you're, you're a little more confident in your conclusions. Mm -hmm. um, and then other days it's like, hmm, maybe I'm not on the right path. What am I supposed to be doing? So uh, I, I think that's a normal part of, of just being alive. Mm, yeah. Have so, you been able to answer any of those questions for yourself? Well, I think telling my story so that it might help others is, is probably the big takeaway out of this mm, and, mm -hmm. and being generous with how I coped with the situation. And because I know there's a lot of other people that undergo trauma, mm. maybe not specifically like I did, but they could use a helping hand. And if but I like can be said, that helping hand. Like you said, the the fact is there was no roadmap for you, so you basically had to create your own roadmap as you went along just because what, whatever you were experiencing, that became your roadmap. So as you look back on that, I imagine there must be some things that you picked up along the way that said, wow, I, I really – I was on the right track when I did X or when I thought about Y, that really helped me a lot or something like that. What, what are some of the things that you picked up that actually made it easier for you to recover? Well, exercise for one. Like exercise okay. will never do you wrong. And <laughs> we, we know a lot more about how exercise physiologically affects your body than we did before. Mm. And when you put it under your body under positive stress, it starts to uh, activate these epigenetic, which are subgenetic um, processes in your body that activate healing and work to decrease inflammation. And, right. Um, 
We also know that the more you use your brain, the more it works to create new neural networks. Right. So I tried to do a lot of learning uh, to the degree that I was able to at that mindset. And, uh, and it did help a lot. It took me, you know, from being damaged at uh, level 10 to maybe damaged at level eight. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And okay. so progress. You know, my, my medical team never once said, you know, maybe we should give you an MRI or a really? CAT scan or, or wow. anything like that. Um, I don't know if you ever see in the movies when, you know, somebody gets bonked in the head and they're waking him up and, you know, the doctor's like, you know, follow, you know, right. That was the extent of the neurological, um, Intervention that that I had over wow, that summer. that's really bizarre. Yeah, that's surprising. Yeah. I mean, if it only happened it, once, I could see that. But but when they knew that it was a repeated event, I would have thought somebody would have said, "We ought to take a look at what's going on here." Yeah, you normally do you a know, cat's game right away. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. So, I remember one incident when I was already in the hospital, and and I had one of these incidents, and I collapsed in a washroom and hit my head. Uh, I bounced off. Uh, a cement count sink counter. Ouch. And, and when I came to, and again, the doctors don't know why this happened to me. They don't know why my heart, uh, started stopping, if that makes sense. <laughs> and they don't know why it started starting again. Mm. So, um, after I bonked my head and came around, I struggled back to the nursing station and, I've got a black eye, you know, I'm cut and I'm everything. And they're like, what happened to you? I mean, wow. I've been my nurse for 10 days. What do you think happened to me? That is crazy. Yeah. Yeah. So that's just crazy. Um, so were you yeah. in like a positive mindset that whole time or were you more like, what's going on? Why is no one kind of treating me? Like I was pretty shell shocked. So, mm-hmm. um, I normally have a more, I'll say assertive, probably back then, uh, I had a more aggressive personality Mm -hmm. and, you know, I would have snarked at the doctors like, um, what's the language allowance on here? Um, (laughs) the FCC isn't monitoring us, so you can get away with almost anything. Uh, I tend to keep it clean, but, but, uh, I've had people (laughs) throw like sailors, so, you know, so. Okay, so I, I would have said to the doctors, like, what the sailor word are you guys doing? <laughs> like, you know, we're not making any progress here. Um, but, uh, but I didn't. And I, I was sort of, um, at, at their mercy at this hospital. It was the, you know, finally one doctor came in. And, after they had me on a Holter monitor, that's one of those mm. portable ECG machines. Right. And uh, they gave it to me on a Friday afternoon. I had the incident where I collapsed in the washroom. And then I said, why don't you just read this? Because it'll show you exactly what happened. And they said, oh, well, they've gone home for the weekend. And because of budget cuts, we don't have anybody back until Tuesday afternoon. Oh, oh my god! Oh, so, oh, and we'd like you to go home. <laughs> we'd like to go home. <laughs> oh my god! Not a chance! <laughs> wow. Oh my goodness! That's just yeah. unbelievable. So it's uh, yeah, that's part of my story. So uh, suffice wow. to say, I stayed in the hospital over the weekend. Tuesday afternoon comes by. And the cardiologist comes running into the room and he's like, holy shit, your heart's been stopping. <laughs> Gee, thanks, doc. Yeah, thank God he wasn't <laughs> off for another week. Right. Yeah. <laughs> oh my God. So, wow. Um, yeah, that was, uh, that was pretty mind blowing. Um, but again, well, plus, it, it doesn't give you a lot of sense of, of, of self-confidence or confidence in, in the medical staff. I mean, that, that has to affect you psychologically. Yeah, but again, I was so battered at that point that I really wasn't. You were pretty much thinking, out of it. Yeah, yeah. it was. Uh, it was a difficult time, 
you know, you yeah. don't really understand. I did another podcast and uh, I think she titled it when you're fighting the, fighting the battles, you don't even know you have to fight. Mm, which that's is a good title. Kind of, kind of what I was, I was going through. Mm-hmm. So they eventually figured out I have a condition called a full AV block, atrial ventricle. Oh, so okay. the electrical system, now you're going to get your medical degrees out of this. Mm-hmm. So Sounds um, good. Okay. You have an electrical system in your heart and it controls the beating and contracting of your ventricles and atrium. Um, they're supposed to be synchronized and this, the electrical system that I had stopped functioning. So it wasn't telling the atria and my ventricle to beat. And so you have no blood pressure, no blood going to right. your brain, no oxygen, and and you're dead. And uh, there, there's a really good clip of, of this if you're interested on the Cleveland Clinic website. Mm. If you look up full heart block, Cleveland Clinic's the premier cardiac hospital in the Possibly in the world, for sure in the U.S. Hmm, in the U.S. Okay. So, um, very interesting. Anyhow. And the, the thought that comes to my mind is, okay, you had these experiences, your heart stopped. We could describe that as a heart attack. That's basically a heart. Any heart stoppage could be described as a heart attack, although it might be mm-hmm. what not, might not be what the medical people call it. But I think uh, lay people would certainly say, "Well, your your heart stopped." I mean, you know, what, whatever you want to call it. But to me, the most amazing thing is your your heart started again. Yeah. Even after five minutes. Yeah. And that's got them stumped too. And even today when I go in for a checkup and I'll talk to um, my doctor, they ended up fixing it with a pacemaker. And I'll talk a little bit about that Uh later. Um, So my pacemaker doctor, I said, why did my heart start again? It's like, we have no clue. We just have no clue. So do you have any sense yourself? I mean, was there some sort of, you, you, you mentioned God doesn't make mistakes. So do you have a, a sense of, well, why would this happen? Well, he doesn't make mistakes, but I think he does have a pretty mischievous sense of humor. <laughs> yeah, I can understand. Yeah. So um, I, I just believe that, you know, I'm here for a reason. And right now I think, helping people who are in similar situations is, is my purpose mm-hmm. uh, or one of my purposes. Mm-hmm. And uh, I'll go with that until I get a sign that, you know, I'm supposed to be moving in another direction. I think that's a good read actually. Mm-hmm. Oh yeah. I mean, I mentioned uh, earlier that I'd had a guest on during my first year who had also been through near death experiences and that was his reason for why he came back. Now he, I, he did have all of the after, life type, you know, experiencing, here's what happened. You're floating above your body. He had all that kind of stuff going on. But at the end of the day, the way he described it was he had the option of whether to come back or not. He could just stay dead or he could come back to life. And he chose both times to come back to life. And he did it for the exact reason you just gave, because he felt Mm -hmm. like he was here to help other people. He was here to help people dealing with similar situations to what he dealt with. Now, in his case, it was, um, well, there were two of them. One was where he was working on a, uh, merchant Marine, so similar to Coast Guard, a merchant Marine cutter mm-hmm. and actually went overboard and drowned. Oh, and then wow. the second, the second incident was when he, um, uh, developed cancer in his lungs and the, and the cancer actually took over his lung and he was, you know, given like a month to live. And that was in the 1990s and I interviewed him in 2013. So clearly he outlived the averages. Um, so different circumstances from what you experienced, but the same net result. I'm here, he said, mm-hmm. to help other people to understand, first of all, you can get through whatever it is you're getting through. And by the way, I also have the story to tell that, you know, the other side's a pretty cool place. Mm-hmm. So you don't have that part of the story, but you certainly have the first part. You have the part where you can say, yeah, you can get through this. I have been through stuff and I can give you some some stories that maybe will help you to, you know, go through your own improvement, go through your own healing. Mm-hmm. Or, or have a deal, like, part of this is, you know, you're going through adversity, and some people are just naturally gifted in going through adversity and being resilient. Mm, true. And other people, it's an acquired skill. And I think my parents both had very hard lives um, with medical issues. 
Really? And even though they, and nothing related to this, like absolutely nothing, mm-hmm. the, they still had to provide for a family of three. Mm. And, you know, while they didn't overtly say, okay, this is the adversity I'm, you know, going through right now, and this is how I'm going to beat it. But I do think that I somehow absorbed by osmosis some of their traits and their, you know, this is how you keep going. And, you know, I'm not going to say it will bother you, but you can still power through it. Mm -hmm. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. You can power through it. And, I mean, I may be putting words in your mouth, so if I am, tell me. But... I think probably, among other things, you have found yourself shifting your perspective about an experience like this because you went through it. My guess is that you had beliefs and attitudes beforehand that have shifted a bit because you've gone through it. Am I right? Yes. So I uh, religiously, I lean more toward the Orthodox Judaism side. Okay. And so I had a pretty firm belief in God, maybe not exactly how, you know, it's pictured in the general world, but Mm -hmm. that, that, you know, God's running the show and you have two ways to go. When you have an experience like this, you can say, why is God putting me through this? And, and screw that. Like I've been good. You know, I've done my prayers. I've eaten my vitamins, like Hulk Hogan tells you to, and all that, (laughs) you know, and, and, you know, screw off. Or you can say, Okay, I'm gonna double in, double down, and and uh, see if I can be a little bit more of what maybe I'm supposed to be in the, I guess the God workshop. The God workshop, okay, that's yeah. a good term. I like that. In, in a sense, I guess we we could draw from um, uh, Old Testament teaching to use the Christian term on uh, the story of Job. I mean, Job was mm-hmm. tested in a whole series of different ways and. Each time it was an opportunity to, are you going to stick with me or are you going to go off on your own little journey all by yourself there? Which way is it going to be? Mm-hmm. And eventually he made the choice. Yeah, okay, I'll stick with you. I'll keep going here. Mm-hmm. Why? We don't know, but I will. <laughs> yeah, that's right. <laughs> Especially considering what he was put through. No doubt about that. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> it, it's sort of like, um, I heard on a, on a podcast uh, maybe today, maybe yesterday, about when they were going through all the Occupy movements, the Occupy Wall Street. Right, right. And mm-hmm. and there was one park that had two, 3,000 people, and one guy was trying to organize them, and he's got his bullhorn out, and he's like, hey, should we march now? And everybody just stood around. And then mm-hmm. another woman, a woman grabbed him, uh, her megaphone and screamed, Let's go! Let's start marching! March, march, march! And and everybody just went. They don't know why. They just did. They just went along with what the crowd was doing. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. So a bit of a lemming effect going on there. Yes. Yeah. So I'm, I'm just hopefully getting some people to follow my lead. And your attitude is everything. I mean, Talk I about that. Talk about yeah. how important that that attitude is, because I do believe that's a big deal. I think Bridge does too. Yeah. Oh yeah. Um, I do intermittent fasting, which I was going to talk about later. But sure. Um, your your body is actually driven by your gut microbiome, with these thousands of bacteria, positive. Actually, there's trillions of them, and they affect everything in your body, and we don't even realize it, and we don't even have a full scope of of how they work and why they work. But there's a thing called leaky gut syndrome. Yes. Where the bacteria go through this one cell layer that uh, is supposed to protect your body from all the bacteria, and they eat through it, and it starts to inflame your body. And one mm. of the things it does is it starts reducing the amount of serotonin produced in the body. Mm-hmm. Now, most of us uh, think serotonin is a brain thing, and it's produced in the brain because that's where it's used. But 80% of our serotonin is produced 
in your digestive tract. In the gut, yeah. Mm-hmm. And and when it gets out of whack, you're not getting near the serotonin you, you're going to need. And my belief in this is that's a leading cause of depression. Sure. Like you're because your system's not working and it kills your intuition. Yes. It, it puts up a blockade between trusting your gut. Like there's a reason there's that phrase. Right. And, and it cuts you off from all sorts of things in the world and where you could normally see something positive or an opportunity. We're being blocked from things like that. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. So when uh, I was fortunate enough to be uh, a moderator in an intermittent fasting group uh, based on the book, Delay, Don't Deny by Jen Stevens, there's 335,000 people in there, um, mostly women. And that's one of the most common pieces of advice that I would give to people is, you know, your mindset is everything. Like if you believe right from the get-go that you're going to fall back into your old belief patterns uh, or behavioral patterns, that's likely what's going to happen. Mm-hmm. I'm not that's saying true. it's easy to be super positive and mindful all the time. Uh, you know, there's things we have to work at. But if you think you're going to be successful, the odds of it are going to be a lot greater. Are there particular? So how did you stay positive? Yeah. <laughs> that, well, that's kind of along the line of what I was going to ask. Yeah. I'm sorry. I missed the question. How did you stay positive during all of this? I imagine it, it was hard going through everything you went through and still staying positive. Well, I think I do have some of that resiliency gene. Um, I had a good therapist. She helped a lot. I had a, a great community supporting me. Yes. I don't think I was consciously thinking, gotta be positive, gotta be positive. I'm gonna get my life back. Mm-hmm. But you you sort of I guess there's a a wave that sort of carries you mm-hmm. if you're in the right circumstances and if you put your life in the right circumstances, it'll help you. And I don't know if this is true or not, but I heard that your personality as an adult is generally a composite of the five people you spend the most time with. And your personality will reflect the values of those people. And the people that are in my inner five, or I could say even my inner 20, are all very, very positive, successful people. Mm. And I believe I, I feed off that. Yeah, I think that's huge. I do yeah, too. That, sure. that, that's a theme that we touch upon here a lot, the idea of social connectedness and the degree mm-hmm. that your social connectedness supports you in whatever it is that you are dealing with in life, whatever you're experiencing. In your case, it was a, a fairly severe medical condition, um, but it could be anything. It could be a job change. It could be a relationship change or, or improvement in a relationship. It could be like what you went through. It could be a health issue. It could be something related to hobbies. It could be related to almost anything, really. But the point is mm-hmm. that when you have that connection to others and you're, you, you hit that down, down the slope part where you're, where you're slipping, the connections that you have are the ones that help you to get through it. Well, the people who don't have those connections are the ones who actually suffer the most because they don't have anybody else to lean on. They don't have somebody else to help them get through to give them the encouragement that they need. So I, yeah. I'm a total believer in that. Yeah. That's really, really important. I, I think, and I'll use this, uh, analogy just because of the times we're in right now with COVID, mm-hmm. but that social network inoculates you. It's a vaccine. Yes. To keep you away from the bad stuff, mm-hmm. whatever that bad stuff is. I agree. Yeah. And, That's and a big deal. We need to do more inoculating or vaccinating ourselves uh, against the bad stuff. What and are some of your favorite ways to do that? Um, learning, exercising, just, mm-hmm. um, I have a group of guys that, um, if you're familiar with the books, the Talmud, the, yeah. Okay. 
So they've been learning Talmud, which is very, very high level learning. It's, it's all rabbinical discussions of mm-hmm. minutiae of law and things like that. They've been mm-hmm. learning together for 20 years and individually they've been learning this stuff for 50 years. Wow. And they're, they're nice enough to let me learn with them. And I admit freely, I, don't understand what the hell they're talking about majority <laughs> of the time. It's it's really hard, and it's meant to be really hard. Um, but I think that just rewires your brain. Mm. Just having you the know, influence, yeah, yeah. Just trying to do these puzzles and follow these rabbinic discussions that uh, that's very healthy. So, you I know, think you're right. To, to your listeners, go find something high level to learn and uh, and let your brain do some of its natural healing. That's a great idea. I mean, not just for somebody who's gone through some serious um, n- neural system stuff like you went through, but for anybody, no matter what it is you're dealing with in life, when you push yourself like that to, to learn something high level, you, you're asking yourself to perform at the highest level you can perform at, at that particular point in time. And when you do that, you're in growth mode. Mm-hmm. Yeah. That's when you're going to do the most growing. hundred um, percent. One of the most profound things that happened to me was in February of 2018. And I'm going to leave out a whole bunch of my medical history for now, because my pacemakers failed a number of times and I had a whole wow. bunch of crazy surgeries after that. Yeah. Uh, I was sitting in my doctor's office as a cardiologist and he comes in and he literally throws a book at me. And this book is the obesity code by Dr. Jason Fung, who uh, is Toronto based nephrologist, kidney doctor. I'm -hmm. I'm in Toronto as well. Um, And uh, my doctor said, buy this, read this, do this but only after we get buy-in from all your other doctors. So <laughs> okay. <laughs> it's all about the foundations of intermittent fasting. Ah. So when I read it, and it took about uh, two months for me to get buy-in from my other doctors, the endocrinologist, the other cardiologists, psychiatrist, family doctor, you know, there's a laundry list. Sure. Um, the whole premise behind it was for weight loss. That's what all these doctors were prescribing it for. Right. And they weren't really aware of all the healing properties that intermittent fasting brings to you. And can you, can just, you describe some of those? Um, sure. I reversed my type two diabetes because of intermittent fasting. Whoa. So the first time I went in the hospital, I had been diagnosed as type two diabetes. I had no idea. Um, my blood sugars, uh, in Canadian, they were 23 in us. There was something like 440, which is basically, I had caramel running through my veins. Yeah. And, um, so I was immediately put on insulin Mm -hmm. and within six months of starting intermittent fasting, all my numbers were perfectly normal. Wow. That's good. Wow. And that's not an uncommon thing. People have fixed their thyroids. People have fixed uh, their Crohn's and IBS. Mm-hmm. People have fixed their rheumatoid arthritis. Um, women have reported reversing their PCOS, their polycystic ovary syndrome, mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. and have found themselves able to have children when they weren't before. Wow. And uh, it it works to normalize your hormones. And we have, our hormones do multiple things. Each, each hormone, we think it does one thing, but it does multiple things. So when you start intermittent fasting, it starts to drive down your basal levels of insulin. Okay. So... When you're type 2 diabetic or you have metabolic syndrome or you're insulin resistant, you have too much insulin floating around in your, in your system. And that causes a cascade effect with other hormones. The, 
One of the other things that insulin does is if there's too much floating around, it hardens your arteries. It reduces their ability to dilate and contract. Mm -hmm. And that's why your blood pressure goes up when you're type 2 diabetic or one of the contributing factors. Mm -hmm. So when your insulin levels go down, your other hormones tend to fall in line. And that's why things like thyroid and arthritis get corrected. Uh, that's why your type 2 diabetes goes away. And it gets rid of that inflammation from the leaky gut. Mm-hmm. So okay. uh, I grew up, I played hockey. I mean, I'm Canadian. It's the law here. <laughs> so, you know, and I was playing outside as a kid in, in, you know, minus 30, minus 40 weather. We didn't know what wind chill was uh, right. back then. <laughs> Just go out there and come back three hours later. So, mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. so you know, I played uh, probably 25 years of hockey. I played wow. American football. I played college mm-hmm. rugby. Mm-hmm. And, Boy. and at one point in the early 2000s, I was 340 pounds. Wow, like, yeah. My body has taken a lot of abuse. Mm. And and there were days I could not get out of bed. Like, my every joint hurt. Wow. And uh, probably within two months of starting the fasting, all that inflammation went away. I, oh, wow. do, not have, I do not have an ache or pain in my body. Good for you. How long did you fast for? Like, was your intermittent, like, how many hours was it? Uh, when I started, I started very conservatively because of all my underlying medical conditions and trying to manage medications. So I did a 12-hour fast and a 12-hour eating window, which gotcha. which is, to those of you who don't know intermittent fasting, that's not to say I'm supposed to eat for 12 hours. <laughs> a block of time <laughs> when I'm allowed to eat. That would be funny. <laughs> that, that would be extreme. Yeah. Yeah. Let's just go to the buffet and uh, you know. stay all day. Yeah. Right. So that would have been, I guess, May, mid May of uh, 2018 when I started. Mm-hmm. And by September, I was able to do 23 ones. That's a 23 hour fast and one meal a day or OMAD. Wow. In that one hour. Wow. And that's how fast it worked for me. You know, everybody's experience will be different depending yeah. on, and I guess we should mention we're not giving up medical advice here. <laughs> if you're going to, you know, get into intermittent fasting or anything like that, please check with your medical professionals. Um, yep. Absolutely. got to be so, smart about it. Yeah. In, in addition so, to being smart about it, too, I want to go back to a previous topic and see how it ties in. Because you were talking earlier about how important it was to have a good mindset dealing with all that you were dealing with. And so I'm wondering what happened, to what degree did you bring mindset into the intermittent fasting and, and what role did it play? Yeah. That's, that's an interesting question. Um, when my doctor threw the book at me and said, you know, the read this, you know, buy this, read this, do this. And, and I read, bought it and I read it and I never questioned it because I'm a little bit of a science person and the explanation Dr. Fung lays out about why this works for you just made so much sense for me mm-hmm. or to me. And I had no reason to doubt it. So I said, this is going to work. And I just kept at it and I saw pretty quickly it was working. And as opposed to when you're on traditional diets, because, you know, we're eating the standard North American quality food, um, you, you know, you lose weight really quickly and then you can't sustain that deprivation that you're going through mm-hmm. and, you know, you break and you yeah. start eating again. And uh, you flood your body. And something I just learned a few weeks ago is the bacteria in your digestive tract actually are aware of all these diets you're going on. And they don't like it when you put your body into starvation. 
And they're the primary driver of why you go over your previous weight, 5, 10, or 15 pounds. Ah, okay. So, um, I learned that from a Dr. Iran Ilanov, who's a gut biome researcher in Israel. Okay. And, uh, he was on the, the Dr. Rhonda Patrick podcast. So I found mm-hmm. that very fascinating. Yeah, sure. So, so um, but that, but I've, that might, I'm sorry, go ahead. No, I was saying I've gotten a little off track here, I think. So, so no, that's all right. <laughs> the, the, you're, you're, you're actually on the track that I was looking for. I just want I'll, I'll, I'll kind of give you a, a nudge more in the direction that I'm looking for. Um, talking about the importance of the mindset when you engage in something like this. Because you, you described very eloquently how you had total belief when you started the program. You, you had read the book. The book made total sense to you. It just resonated inside. So you're going to trust it without any doubt at all. And you just dove right into it. And when you were saying that, the thought that went through my mind was, well, that's what made a huge difference. When you have that mm-hmm. mindset, you're going to make it work just because your mindset's helping you to make it work. Was that what your experience was? It was. I think it's also the fact that I had my entire medical team were like, go for it. Mm -hmm. They didn't know a lot about it. They did a little bit of research and they said, we think this could really help you. That helps. Yes. Their confidence helps you a lot, I'm sure. Mm -hmm. Despite the fact that, you know, doctors have tried to kill me 50 times or whatever. (laughs) It turned out to be. We'll we'll leave that one aside for a moment. (laughs) Yeah. But for this, total buy-in. Yeah. Yeah. So what, when you when, do your first, I'm oh, sorry. <laughs> no, go ahead. I, you know me, Bridge. I tend to just dominate. So you just jump right in. I love no it. problem. But when you did your um, fasting or when you started, did you find yourself like connecting more to just your like inner self since you were fasting? Like, did anything, you know, like spiritual happen to you? Or you? I guess it depends how you define spiritual. So I think we all have our own definition of what that means. Uh, you definitely get more in touch with your body's own signals. Uh, you know, starting with your hunger and satiety hormones and mm-hmm. you start to listen to your body and you're running on ketones as opposed to carbohydrates mm-hmm. and your brain likes those much more, uh, than sugars and a brain fog clears that most people don't even realize they have. Mm. and you're just able to see so much more of the world and think in ways that you would never be able to think before. Now, when I started this and I tried to make that video, which uh, Walt told me wasn't really showing up on my uh, profile, (laughs) um, I learned that all by myself. And, and before I was fasting, I would never have been able to figure out that, that software. I would never have come to it. Yeah. Um, fasting repairs your brain. When you fast, it releases from these epigenetic pathways, um, neurotrophic, neurotropic factors that start rebuilding pathways your neurons, your axons, your dendrites, the connecting things. And uh, it just allows you to perform higher. It makes total sense. Whatever. Yeah. And, you know, I guess if you're, you know, to me there's a difference between being religious and being spiritual. And spiritual is more of a feeling and being religious is more of a practice. Okay. So I think if you're a naturally spiritual person, you'll get a significant bump out of this. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that makes sense. Also, what you were describing in terms of how the physiology uh, operates there reminded me very much of something that my sister-in-law once told me about. Um, she recently got her doctorate in statistics, but while she was pursuing it, she'd actually, for most of that time period, 
been trying to pursue it in the fields of uh, neuroscience and biology and, and was looking for some sort of a bridge in there to, to build her degree on. She ultimately ended up selling on the statistics, but she studied a lot of the stuff. One of the things that she told me about was, you know, they have all these different ways of wiring us up, which they probably would have done with you if they had actually had their mindset in a better place, but that's another story. Yeah. But, the, but the point is they can wire us up. You know, they, they, they can check what's going on in terms of detecting when we're having certain kinds of thoughts or certain emotions. We can, they can trace stuff mm-hmm. through the nervous system. They can check stuff at the cellular level. They can determine whether there's healing going on. They can determine where, where cells are dying off. They can, they can track all of this stuff. And they've gotten to the point now where they can wire all that up to a test subject in a lab. And then they can induce the test subject to focus on something that has a really, really happy feeling to it. You know, something yeah. that, that has an intensive happy feeling. And then they can trace through the entire system down to the cellular level and they can see that within 90 seconds of that happy thought that at the cellular level, they can spot all this healing going on, particularly in an injured or diseased area. And then if they reverse the process and they ask the subject to focus on something angry or frustrated or, you know, something in a more negative range and then trace it down through the whole system. Again, they find the exact same thing going on, except at the cellular level, the cells are being killed off. So it's a dying yeah. process going on. And, and it all happens within a 90 second time frame, which is just mind blowing as far as I'm concerned. So when you're talking about when you, when you're talking about the ability to uh first of all buy into this program and you had a total buy in so you had a very affirmative very grateful appreciative positive view of the whole thing like yes yes this is going to work I'm really there you're sending all these signals to your body to heal and then you're engaging in the intermittent fasting process and you're reinforcing all those signals and then you get a result in how, how long did it take before you got your first real big result um probably within 6 weeks so about six weeks, you got this huge result, and that all fed into that. And I, all I can think to myself is, what if you had been in a space where you doubted the whole thing, you really didn't think it was going to work, you didn't trust the doctors, what they were telling you, and so forth? I'll bet you you never would have had a healing result out of it, just because you would have sabotaged your own effort. I, I My experience with so many other people in the fasting group that I was coaching uh, is – some people are naturally predisposed to being negative. And mm. I don't know if that's because they got this funky combination of bacteria in their system that mm. just predisposes them or, you know, whatever the reason, uh, they were obviously less successful than mm. other fasters. Yeah. Yeah. It's, it's very educational. I think to look at, what happens in these healing processes. And, and it's great to know that you can take control because yeah, that's really what you did. You took control. You decided, okay, I'm going to be responsible for my own healing. I don't know how to do it necessarily. I'm going to listen to what they have in the book and I'm going to, I'm going to do it. I would attribute the large majority of my healing, uh, especially the brain trauma to it's all happened after I've been intermittent fasting. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And you were able to buy in completely and make it work. And that's just fabulous. That's just really, mm-hmm. really fabulous to have that kind and of I, result. And I see it in others. So it gets reinforced that way. Yeah. And, um, you know, I'd go to out for meals with some people and I'd say, sorry, I'm not eating. Uh, you know, I'll just drink water. Uh, we don't <laughs> do a dry fast, I should say. Oh, okay. Um, that's probably uh, good because you need to stay hydrated. So that's important. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And, the company I was keeping had more difficulty with me being fasting than I did. Than you did. <laughs> you know, they're just like, oh, no, you're not eating. That can't be healthy. Actually, it is very healthy, you know. So, um, and, you know, if you hang out in a Jewish crowd, it's like, eat, eat. <laughs> yes. Jewish and Italian. Yeah, those are the two. Yeah. <laughs> so, yeah. They eventually get used to it as well. And then I won't say it happens all the time, but then they'll say, can you tell me how to do this? Like they see it's working for me uh-huh. and keeping me healthy and keeping me out of the hospital. Right. And things of that nature. So, uh, you know, it's they often ask hard to questions. argue with the results. Yeah. When you see the results, you may have a person might have resistance points of various kinds, but when you start seeing results, that's when we're able to start making some shifts in the way we perceive things. We think about them a little bit differently. Yes. And 
I think our pop culture has sort of tainted our view on how fast things should work for us. Oh, yeah. And, you know, everything has to be instant, instant and it's getting worse with the mm-hmm. TikToks. Uh, because we, you know, we've, we've watched since the original Star Trek where the doctor would just come over you with a wand. Right. And, you know, eight seconds. Oh, this is your, your issue. And then 14 seconds later, you know, they've used some laser or whatever to fix you up. Mm-hmm. Yep. And, you know, that just isn't the way the world works. Well, except we do and carry the communicators with us, but I know what you mean. Yeah. <laughs> The, um, you know, even now you're watching things like Grey's Anatomy or, um, I just see so many things that I've experienced that I know that's not the way it happens in the hospital. And, uh, after one of my collapses, uh, before they gave me my pacemaker, uh, I opened my eyes and they were about to hit me with the paddles. Mm. And, 10, 12 people in the room. Wow. And, you know, and then they left me alone. Mm-hmm. They thought I was fine. And then it happened again. And this time there was like 25 people in the room. I have no idea wow. what they all had to be there for. Mm. And they actually had to move my roommate. They took him in his bed out of the room to make room for all of them. Wow. So, and I've seen code blues in the cardiac ward. Mm-hmm. And, you know, it's not like eight seconds. Every person that needs to be there is there with the perfect instrument and the perfect medication and the perfect right. knowledge. You know, it just doesn't happen. Yeah. Um, there's no choreographer. Yeah. So to think that any tool that you use is just going to be a straight line with no twists or turns and no setbacks is unrealistic. Mm -hmm. But what is realistic is how you choose to um, deal with whatever level of adversity you're going to deal with. If you were to uh, apply a score to that, I mean, doctors do that all the time. Yeah, on a scale of one to 10, how much pain are you feeling right now? No, that's kind of thing. Mm -hmm. But if you're going to apply that same kind of scale to the importance of mindset, where would you put mindset on a scale of one to 10? 30. Okay. <laughs> that says it. <laughs> yeah. I mean, yeah, not that's to really minimize it. anybody else's issues, but if there's ever been anybody who had a reason to just, you know, I give up. I mean, you know, and it, it's just never popped into my mind. Never. I've got what to do you somehow... What, what do you attribute that to? What, what, the fact that it didn't pop in your mind, what do you attribute that to? Um, it's a great question. I don't know. I think it's resilience and overcoming adversity are like a muscle. You know, the more you work it, the the better it becomes. And I guess I've just gotten my overcoming adversity and resilience muscles up to a level where they're almost self-sustaining. You know, you don't have to, uh, you know, run your marathon every day, but you can go for shorter runs. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And I think that every time I help somebody, whether it's with their intermittent fasting or something else, I think that's also exercising that muscle that flows back to me. Yeah. I think so do that's you true. coach people on just intermittent fasting or do you coach them on mindset as well? Or does it go hand in hand when you coach people? They go hand in hand uh, to a degree, but usually the mindset usually comes up when people start getting frustrated that they haven't lost 32 pounds in eight days, like it says on the magazine when you're checking <laughs> out of the grocery store. Understandably, yes. You're right, because because mindset usually is not something for most people that becomes a, a major thing until all of a sudden they're facing, well, here's what happens when my mindset wasn't there. Yeah, there, there's so many things in our education system that we take for granted mm. that actually should be taught. Mm-hmm. And, you know, things like how do you do homework? 
The teachers just assign homework and assume you know how to do homework. But I think there's a lot of kids. I know I certainly didn't know how to do homework. Um, you know, good communication skills aren't taught. And mm. I don't think having a positive mindset is taught. I will say this. In the course of my life, I can say that when I compare what I remember from when I was growing up to what I'm seeing now around me, there's still plenty of population that doesn't appreciate the importance of the positive mindset, but there's a larger chunk that are. The percentage mm -hmm. has grown. The, 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 the influence, the impact of people who believe in maintaining um, a, a positive, upbeat mindset has increased. So I see that as, as like the great improvement that has occurred during my lifetime, just the overall improvement in mindset, not across the board necessarily, but more people than ever before realizing, yeah, this is important. I got to pay attention to this. Even if it wasn't taught to me in school, this is really important. This is something that I need to, to take on board. Those are people that have their antennas tuned mm. uh, before others have their antennas tuned. So I remember when I was in financial services and I was selling life insurance and investment products and stuff like that. Um, and even before that, I mean, the top performers were all going to see people like Brian Tracy and reading Ogmandino. Mm, and, yeah. uh, oh, I'm drawing a blank here. Um, any, any of these types of, you know, positive Ken Blanchard. Mm hmm. You know, the list goes on if I didn't have uh, brain damage, but. Um, <laughs> That's all right. I don't have the brain damage and I can't remember half the time. So you're not alone, alone yeah. on that one. So, but it was, you know, largely the top performers that were always making that investment or mm -hmm. starting off the day, you know, reading some sort of book, whether it was a Bible or something on sales technique or, mm -hmm. you know, maintaining relationships, uh, coming into the office 15, 20 minutes early and going through whatever ritual they went through. Um, but, you know, they're, they're the ones that were ahead of the crowd, and they were doing this, you know, 30 years ago. And I'm sure, sure there was a select group before that that were doing it. Yeah. Yeah. And, and the, the number of authors was limited. It was a limited set. I mean, you named a few of them. Um, there was Norman Vincent Peale. Uh, yeah. Dale, Dale Carnegie. Um, yeah. Napoleon Hill. I mean, there, there were a number of them, but, but they were a relatively small handful. Today, you can find a larger group of them. And so even the number of leaders has improved, which is a, in terms of numbers, which is a great thing. Yeah. I was actually a Dale Carnegie disciple for a while. And I, really? I was okay. a trainer. Yes. Okay. A trainer for Dale Carnegie. Oh, cool. Yeah. 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 So, well, it makes sense. You were in, you were in a sales field. I mean, how to win friends and influence people. That's, that's kind of, that's part and parcel. It's funny if you read that book now. Um, how dated the writing seems. Oh, sure, yeah. <laughs> it's like, and, and the people he's using for examples, you know, yeah. like, you know, Franklin Roosevelt or things like that, or other, his, the pulp culture references of, of his time right. are so different. Very. But the message is still fantastic. It's the same message, yeah. The, the principles haven't changed. The principles are just as important now as they were then and vice versa. Yeah. So you're right. It may be dated in terms of the examples, but the, the importance of the underlying meaning that that never changes. I don't think. Yeah, that's a really big deal. Well, thank you very much for sharing your story. This has been really interesting. Yeah, um, thank especially you. interesting talking to somebody who's been through them and not had all of the you know other side uh, spiritual experiences, and yet mm -hmm. has come through it. I mean, what got you through it was your mindset, and that's really what's at the forefront of all of it, anyway. So this has been very interesting. Mm -hmm. Thank you for sharing your story today. My pleasure. You're very welcome. Have very glad to have had day. you. Yep, you do the same. Um, just a little heads up. we got Dave Combe coming tomorrow. He's a pianist who has uh, made a career out of music. He's going to be talking about that tomorrow. And then on Thursday, Robert Riopil, who is an amazing guy. This guy is he, – he, he knows like the big movers and shakers of the world. He was on the show a few weeks ago, and he's going to be back again. So – um, more stuff to look forward to. But in the meantime, thank you, Bridget. Thank you, Fred. Thank you to our podcast listeners everywhere. And we will see you all next time here on LOA Today. Goodbye, everybody.